Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Alright, today's text. Hoping it's not going to get you between well, hope. Yeah, no, it's going to get you to between the eyes. That's that's good, I think. Um, it's not like last week, though. I don't think. Okay, so we are actually pretty much halfway through the Sermon on the Mount now. Just over, I think, um, verse number wise. So we've still got quite a lot to do, about a few months. So, but it's good. Matthew chapter six, verse sixteen. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So this morning, we're going to be talking about fasting, but we're not actually going to be talking about fasting, because these verses, although they mention fasting, are actually not about fasting. You can't read these few verses and learn how to fast and what it means. So when we're, because the text actually isn't about that. So if you pre-read about what might be coming today and going, oh, we're going to learn how to fast. That's not going to happen this morning. We'll obviously talk about it, but that's actually not what's going on here. If you are wanting a good teaching on what it is to fast, what it means to fast, how to fast, all that sort of stuff, um, I encourage you to go look up John Mark Comer's teaching in his series called Practicing the Way. Okay, so he does a few hours worth of teaching and there's a whole bunch of stuff on his website. Um, to get some tips and tricks, I encourage you to go there. So this morning, we are going to look at who our audience is. What motivates us to do the things that we do? Is it for people in order for us to get kudos from them? Or is it for God to bring our lives into the alignment that he's calling us to, to the maturity. Now, we're still at the heart. We haven't left that yet. So you can look holy and pious. You can give lots of money. You can even fast until you pass out. But if you're doing that and playing to the audience and your heart's not engaged then you are not going to receive anything from God in doing so. One of the examples I was trying to think of about that, of what Jesus is sort of talking about here, and the only thing I could sort of come up with was when you go travelling. I'm assuming everyone understands the, at least the concept of international travel if you haven't been anywhere. <laughs> Sorry? You forgot, yeah, we've forgotten how to travel because, you know, what do you do? Um, but when you enter a country, you enter their economy. When you go to China, 
you actually have to enter their economy. So you've got to, you buy the things that they sell with the money that they have, which is the yuan, all right? Now, Australian dollars don't get you anything there because you've got to exchange it to partake in their economy. And so you, if you find yourself in Beijing dealing with their economy, and then you fly to Tokyo. Now, when you get to Tokyo, you can't use yuan anymore because you're not in the economy of China anymore. You're in the economy of Japan, which uses the yen. And so when you start to look at the economies of what God is talking about here, if you are trying to deal with God using the economy of humanity, you're actually operating in the wrong economy. And so if you want to do business with God, you've got to start to operate in the economy of God. You can't use yen in China and vice versa. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But not seeking approval from others is hard. It's part of our eternal, internal makeup. Not playing to the crowd. Now, I had to learn how to do that. Now, if you don't have a public platform, you might play to the crowd in certain ways, but certainly if you have a public platform, it's harder because you want people to like you. Don't, we all want people to like us, I'm assuming. Some people don't care as much as others. And some people will almost destroy their lives to get approval from others. So the job I had before, well, I, I had a six-month hiatus working in a gym, um, but the job I had before this one was that I was the chaplain at St. John Ambulance. And so I had a whole bunch of different sort of main tasks and roles that I had in that job, but one of them was that I had to present, along with the team that I was with, had to present like a two-hour class every pretty much every other day on mental health. So um, every year we would, as a team, we would write mental health literature and then we would produce a book, a training manual, and then we would pretty much travel around the state training at that. And we, we were training anywhere between about eight and 15,000 people. So it was every other day to large groups of people training this stuff. And one of the things that we did every single lesson for four years pretty much was that we handed out feedback forms. You know, it was mostly a tick and flick, you know, yes, one to five, did you like it, blah, 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 was it helpful, that sort of stuff. And at the end of that was obviously where they could write down, you know, tips and tricks, or what I liked, what I didn't like, all that sort of stuff. Usually it was like, we want more lollies and biscuits and stuff. <laughs> Whatever. But the thing was, we would, of our department, because they would obviously track that, we were pretty much sitting at like a 98% approval sort of... Pretty much we always got positive feedback if they gave us feedback. And so we would always, you know, after a class, did they say anything? Was it good? Was it bad? Now, if it was all good, then it was great. But if it was bad, you go, well, that person was obviously an idiot anyway, so I won't listen to them. <laughs> but... but but sometimes you would do it and you would look and it would, like some of us, it would destroy our, the rest of our day because it was negative feedback. 
Um, the second year I was there, um, we had a paramedic who actually came on our team and helped us um, train. And he got some really good feedback one day, because we were all like going over them. And I went, you know, his name was Colin. I said, hey, Colin, look at this. And he goes, no, I don't need to look at that. And I'm like, really, why not? He goes, oh, I don't care about that. That's not what I'm doing it for. I'm a part of this team and I'm training because my motivation to do this is actually to impart my knowledge about my journey and to help others. So whether they liked it or not is actually almost irrelevant. And that was like a black and white moment for me. And so I, had, I determined at that point that I wasn't going to ever read a feedback form ever again, and I never did. Much of the vexation of the rest of my team, because some of it, you got really good, and like, oh, Brett, look at this, I don't care. Because the thing was, I mean, firstly, I had to train it. I wasn't, like, just making stuff up. We had to train it, so I didn't have a choice. However, if I gave the best that I had in the moment, whether you picked it up or not, whether you liked it or not, and all that sort of stuff, quite frankly, is irrelevant. And so part of being able to teach and to train and to give the best that I have, now, I, I mean, good feedback's nice, bad feedback's fine, okay, where, whatever, but ultimately, I don't preach for you. I don't, I don't want to minimise this, so don't, don't hear me wrong here, but my motivation to preach is actually out of obedience to something greater than you in the room. And so I'm happy for the positive feedback. If you don't like what I said, then that's cool. We can have a chat about that. I always say, if you don't agree with what I say, then maybe you should read your Bible and see where you sit. And I'm not saying that because I'm arrogant. What I'm saying is, is that if what we're saying here brushes up against your theology and it's uncomfortable, then maybe you need to sit that before the Lord and not argue with me. Okay, so not because I'm the arch. <laughs> I didn't say that. That came out a bit wrong. I apologise. <laughs> and so, and I know that for the other people who speak here, the motivation isn't to get kudos from everyone here. It's out of a sense of obedience to the Lord that we preach. And so when you start to drop that need for approval away, because if I was always chasing your likes, then I'd be all over the place all of the time because what you like is not the same as what you like. So who do I, who do I pander to? So this is what Jesus is talking about here. All right. So a bit of the context. End of chapter 5. Jesus says, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus asks his followers here to be perfect, obviously, as their heavenly Father is perfect. And as we've sort of discovered, I would hope, over the last however many months we've been doing this, the context of perfection is in the concept of maturity. Now, perfection here has sort of two strands. Because it's not like you have to pray perfectly and you have to live your life perfectly. It's something beyond that. So on the one hand, it points to an ideal by which the sort of the Christian life is measured. And on the other hand, it points to a quality 
that Jesus wants his followers to embody here and now. So there's this now and not yet sort of quality to the perfection that Jesus is calling us to. Okay, And those who are maturing in their walk are people who are beginning to understand and navigate between the ideal and the actual and how we hold those two in tension. So to be perfect is to be what we were meant to become. I can see some eyes going, oh, I'm trying to, trying to take that in. It is the person described in the Beatitudes. It is someone who understands what it means, what it means to be poor in spirit. It is the person who Jesus describes as being salt and light. That where your inner condition is brought out into relationship with the larger world. It is understanding that our problems are first and foremost issues of the heart. This is the person who Jesus is talking about who is maturing in their faith and therefore holds that tension and is moving towards that. Now, the first half of chapter 6, we learn how perfection is expressed in relationship to giving, prayer and fasting. And, these mature, and the maturity in these areas will never be reached if your actions are performed primarily to be noticed by others. Are we all there still? Good. So this section from chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 18 is divided into these three parts of giving fast or giving prayer and fasting and each statement has a pattern so when you're giving don't be like the hypocrites who make a whole bunch of noise to be applauded by people because they've received their reward instead do this in secret where only your father sees you and will reward you same goes for prayer don't be like the hypocrites who pray in prominent places to be seen by others. They have their reward. Instead, pray in secret, where only your Father sees you and will reward you. Fasting is the same, and we'll get a bit more into the context of that. Now, these aren't commands against public prayer and against giving and fasting. Okay, So it's not saying that everything we've done this morning Jesus is against that, okay? Since obviously Jesus publicly prayed himself and public prayer was common in the synagogues and the temples. Instead, Jesus here is teaching that you should focus your attention on God as your audience in your acts of piety. The amount of times I hear people pray and there's this thing in the back of my head and it's like clang and cymbals. That's all God hears because you can tell they're just doing it for them and to sound holy in front of other people. So what is the biblical context of fasting? Now, Jewish fasting consisted both of corporate public fasts and individual fasts. 
Now, the Old Testament law required a form of self-denial of all Israelites on the Day of Atonement. Traditionally, this self-denial included abstaining from eating, drinking, sexual activity, washing, anointing, or putting on sandals. I don't know. Maybe you could see your wife's toe. Remember that? No. Hey. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that just came out. That's no there. I apologise. So corporate fasts were later required for a few different additional occasions. So the Jewish New Year was one. The anniversary of a long-remembered tragedy from Jewish history, such as the shattering of the stone tablets at the Ten Commandments, um, the divine refusal for Israel to enter the Promised Land um, for the destruction of the Temple. Okay, so on the anniversary of these things was also considered a fast. And fasts could be mandated during times of national crisis, such as drought or war, famine, military attack, that sort of stuff. Now, all corporate fasts in the Old Testament expressed grief and mourning and were demonstrations of repentance. The Israelites hoped that God would respond to the repentance expressed by granting relief or protection. Isaiah 58 verse 4. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fists. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Through fasting, the Israelites hoped to make their voices heard on high. So they were trying to enter the economy. The private individual fast for the Israelites seems to be rarer. Many commentators actually say that, you know, if you were a true faithful Pharisee, you fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. There's conjecture about whether this was true or not. Um, it could be referring to some special fasts, such as like a prayer for rain. And these sorts of fasts actually started with individuals, and that if no rain came, they would sort of gather more people. More people would fast, gather more people. So it would almost be like a, then it would be a, a community fast. But there's not really a consensus here whether fasting was mandated for individuals or not. Now, the Old Testament prophets also challenged hypocrisy during fasts. Isaiah sternly rebukes the Israelites for transforming fasting into an empty ritual that sought to make God respond to prayers by, by depriving the body, bowing the head and wearing sackcloth and ashes. Jeremiah was the same. And Joel urged the people to turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning, and he too warned against hypocritical fasting. He insisted that the sacred fast was an expression of true inner repentance and not just an empty ritual. So it's, you can see that it's actually digging deeper where Jesus is going. And during the national crisis, those who fasted often tore their garments, ash on their head, that sort of stuff, to display that they were the holy ones, that they were the superheroes of fasting. And so when you start to look at what Jesus is saying here, it's actually consistent with the spirit of what the Old Testament prophets are saying about fasting. Now, fasting 
isn't really that familiar to us anymore in this context. Now, we hear about fasting all the time. Does anyone intermittent fast here? Some people, a couple of hands. I intermittent fast. Dabbled with it for years, where you have a 16-hour fast and an eight-hour feeding window. <laughs> That's what it's called. <laughs> Works well. If you're looking to lose weight, do some, do some intermittent fasting. Also stops you from being hangry because you, your body submits to the hunger and it actually makes it more comfortable. If you get hangry, it's telling you that you are absolutely at the, the mercy of your body and you have no control. Sorry, that's the personal trainer coming out of me. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that Jesus was not talking about a diet program. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Fast, you look fabulous. Um, So the fasting that Jesus is referring to here consists of giving up food and drink for a limited period of time and replacing it with activities that essentially have a spiritual significance. It is a deliberate act in which we focus voluntarily upon the single overriding objective to commune with God. That's what fasting's about. Now, there's actually not a lot of teaching on fasting in the New Testament. It's only mentioned a few times. And the disciples were even questioned as to why they don't fast. You know, it's like John's disciples fast, why aren't you fasting? There's a few reasons for that, potentially. It could be that the fast expressed mourning that was inconsistent with the Messiah's advent. The Messiah was with them. There was no need to mourn. And the fast actually included standardised prayers that contained pleas for the Messiah to come. The Messiah was with them. You can't pray for the advent of Messiah to come if he's standing next to you. He's here. It would make an inconsistent prayer. The disciples and Jesus likely participated in the um, Day of Atonement fast but obviously only up to Jesus' resurrection. Because once Jesus was resurrected, there's no need to have a day of atonement anymore because we've been atoned for once and for all. But the language in 6.16 says that whenever, whenever you fast, it assumes that the disciples will. So what's Jesus saying? When you are fasting, don't walk around all sullen-faced, doom and gloom, all the suffering. So the hypocrites were actors who were putting on a show. And Jesus was prohibiting putting on a sad face while you were inwardly delighting at the attention. Does anyone still do the 40-hour famine? Did you do that as a kid? Yeah, when you can only eat what are those horrible little hard lolly thing, barley sugars. <laughs> Who said that? You? 
wash your mouth out, mate. <laughs> you know, but you'd be like, you know, 20 hours in, like, oh, I'm fast, 40 hour fast, look at, you know, I mean, you're not doing it for the kids, you're doing it for everyone can see that you're fasting. <laughs> so, but in order to do that, is the very definition of what hypocrisy is. That your motives and actions are not in line with each other. There's a lot in here which I'm not going to go into too many specifics. But I'll sort of pull up more general. So whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. So the literal translation here is that they make their faces disappear in order that they can appear to man. It's associated with darkness and may not have the... (laughs) What's that? <laughs> Let me start that point again. <laughs> so the objective here is not that it is associated that's not only associated with darkness like the facial expression but also that they cover their face with ash. Okay? Wearing sackcloth, rubbing ash all over your bodies, making it blindingly obvious to people that you are fasting. Okay? Jesus warns that when people do that to call attention to themselves, that you have got your reward. The verb that Jesus uses here, and in chapter 6, verse 2, and chapter 6, verse 5, when he's talking about giving and prayer, is that you have received in full what is due to you. And the hypocrites who fast to impress others will probably achieve their goals. That's the full extent of their reward, though, this temporary admiration. And those who seek temporary earthly rewards for acts of righteousness forfeit the heavenly rewards that are due. So the way that Jesus calls us to avoid doing that and doing fasting for impure motives is by concealing the fact that we're fasting. Now, I hope that you can understand we're talking about fasting, but this can be extrapolated to a hundred different things that we do. Yeah? So he commanded that the disciples put oil on their heads to wash their faces when they fasted. If you're fasting, you are to look normal, clean and happy. When you're fasting, traditionally in the Jewish context, that you're not allowed to wash your face, you're not allowed to anoint yourself with oil, all that sort of stuff. So the very idea that you are washing your face and that you are putting oil on your head is that you, because it would happen at the end of a fast. So you're not doing that, and then all of a sudden you'd wash your face and put oil on your head and stuff like that, and usually because it was for the sun and stuff like that. So it's like that's a marker that you've ended your fast. So if you're doing that all of the time, 
then it means that you're not fasting, at least to the public eye. So that's what he's talking about. It's not that, oh, you know, all of a sudden you get really come to church really clean, covered in oil. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, that's not what he's saying. Being able to serve the Lord in secret when no one else knows about it is actually one of the most freeing things that you could do. If your economy is kudos, you will chase them forever and you will never be happy. Having your ego stroked by people might be nice in the, in the short term, but people are fickle. And their placard, placades go away pretty quick. So what's this reward that Jesus is talking about? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now the promise of reward here must be understood specifically in the context in relationship to the reward that the hypocrites are receiving. That the hypocrites, when they are noticed by people, have received their reward in full. It's not about... The particulars of the reward, it's actually about when the reward is received. It's a time thing. By giving to the poor, by praying and fasting for the purpose of attention and honour from others, you've received your public attention, great for you, that's the only reward you're ever going to receive. By doing these things that God is your primary audience ensures that your reward is in the future. And given the context of this, it's likely that the reward of those who do this will be participation in the kingdom of God. Hypocrites will not have a future reward faithful followers of Jesus will. The kingdom itself here seems to be the reward that Jesus is speaking about. It's not just that you get a nice cloud. And if you think there are clouds in heaven, <laughs> you're wrong, but that's okay. So, like I said at the start, this isn't about the teaching of how to fast. I'm sure you've all gathered that by now because I haven't gone, you should do it on a Tuesday and it should be for this long. It's a comment on the attitude of the disciple who is fasting on how to properly honour God. 
It's about covenant loyalty to God rather than to gain honour from others. Yet again, I'll say it again, if you do the things that you do here or in life to get the oohs and ahs of other people, then you've completely missed the point. So we sit before the Lord. And we have his majesty in front of us. We sit in his throne room. While everything that he has to give us, he gives us. He calls us his children. fullness of life is before us. And God sits and calls us out to make living our lives for him the most important thing. Because it is. And the hypocrites sit there and go, yeah, I get all of that, God. But I really want their approval. What God is calling us to here is a reorientation of our lives again and again and again. It's about digging deep into who you are as a person and offering all of that before the Lord. And that is enough. It needs to be enough for us. If you need any more than that in your lives, then you are playing to an audience that is the wrong audience. Ego's a really, really powerful thing. Wanting to be liked is a really, really highly motivational thing. I almost feel like I want you to turn to each other and say, I don't care what you think about me. And it's not in that dismissive, I don't love you sort of way, but it's about, Lord, this walk with you is just a steady pace in the same direction. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that you speak to hearts and you transform lives, that you call people out of their comfort zones, that you call people out of their small boxes, that they allow you out of the box that they've put you in. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone here sees you as someone who is alive and dynamic and that you are worthy of all our praise.
and all our dedication in our lives for always. Heavenly Father, I pray that in your soft way that you convict hearts and spirits here this morning of those who play to the audience, of those who live lives that are washed around by the tide of human approval. That they be lighthouses and beachheads for those who are lost and that they be stable and solid because you are their foundation. Lord, we thank you that you call us out of our comfort of the little lives that we actually want to live, that the safe lives that we actually want to live, Father, and that you call us into something dangerous and exciting and wonderful that is not of the economy of this world. But that if we want to start to deal in your economy, Father, that we actually have to start dealing with the things that you value and not what the world says is important. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We give you all of our, our praise and our worship. We thank you that you are gracious. We thank you for your mercy.